Hey everybody, and welcome back to another bonus episode of Podcast of the Dragon. I hope you're doing well. If you hear any sounds popping off in the background, that's because it is New Year's Eve. There's about an hour left counting down here on the West Coast before it is 2022, so I just wanted to get this little bonus mini-sode recorded and get it out to you. I have been awfully silent on the podcast front over the last six weeks or so because the show has been out. I hope you've been enjoying the show. If you haven't, sorry about that. Overall, I think it's been pretty good. Uh, You should check out my YouTube channel. There's a link in the show notes. If you've liked the show or liked it at least well enough to have wanted to keep watching it, I've done react videos about it. And I've got one more to put out about uh, episode 8. It's going to be more of a review rather than a react. And probably we'll do some more videos off and on just to do a little bit more deconstruction. And I'm just going to try to have a bit more of a YouTube presence. But it is time for me to be back doing content for the books. And so I'm going to jump back into the Shadow Rising by doing this mini so that I've been contemplating for quite a while. And honestly, I've been working on the notes for it while I was doing React videos for the show. And one of the reasons that I wanted to do this particular mini-sode is because Elaine is one of my favorite characters, and I do plan on doing a character study of her later on, probably towards the end of my episodes for this book. And I do not want to sully a well-rounded episode about Elaine and her arc up to this point in the book series and her strengths and weaknesses and everything that makes her great, with any kind of a discussion about her relationship with Rand. Unlike a lot of folks, I actually think that there is a very real foundation to Elaine's feelings for Rand, but their relationship is the least interesting thing about her, so I figured rather than talking about it, except in the most tangential way if it is relevant, in any kind of an episode about her, I'm going to make their relationship the focus of its own minisode. Elaine and Rand's few days in the Shadow Rising together is the only time that we really get to see their relationship, beyond a lot of agonized inner narrative and confusion that they both torment us with, and then their single night together that happens in Book 9, 8 or 9 months after they first come together in the stone. And that is pretty much all that we get until the very end in Book 14 when they meet up before the last battle and they have this great, interesting dinner together that is one of the better written character relationship scenes at all in the book series, and definitely one of the better scenes that Brandon Sanderson does. The flavor of the scene is very much Sanderson's writing, but I think he does it very well, and I think he does a really good job with Elaine's characterization. Elaine and Rand are two people who are mostly wedded to their duty, so they have a very unique relationship. Elaine understands him on a level that nobody else does. She gets to understand what his burden is in a way that no one else can. So a lot of people think that Elaine's feelings for Rand are very shallow because she barely knows him. But I couldn't disagree more. And I've expressed that in earlier episodes. I've talked about having an instantaneous crush on a new and interesting boy and how I empathize with and understand her fascination and fixation upon Rand. And that's just with the infatuation part. I can just empathize with that. And if that were the whole of her experience with Rand, where she saw this interesting boy and had a moment of interaction with him, like if if Rand visited the court, or she went out among the people with her mom and just had some manner of interaction with him that was not an emotionally fraught situation, 
then I would agree, okay, yeah, that's pretty shallow, or it was just his Taviran working on her, and I would find their relationship or her feelings toward him not particularly compelling. But that is not what happens. Instead, we have a scene where Rand falls into the palace gardens and Elaine does not let him leave right away because he's interesting and she's young and impulsive and because she lives in a sheltered world where because she is the daughter heir, she's used to getting her way. She's used to having a certain amount of authority and she thinks that means that she's kind of bulletproof for lack of a better term. And it takes being out in the world for her to learn otherwise. Elaine is a smart person when it comes to book learning and politics and the theoretical, but when it comes to life situations, she has to learn all of those lessons the hard way, which is one of the reasons why I love her relationship with Nynaeve so much, and one of the reasons why I feel like she hero-worships Nynaeve to a certain extent, because Nynaeve generally has a ton of common sense, except for when RJ chooses to rob her of it for plot purposes, which I'll discuss that later when it's relevant to other episodes that I'm doing. For someone who is so smart, Elaine sometimes, and more often frankly than I feel is fair to her character, makes dumb choices. And in the scene in the garden, when Rand falls in, she doesn't let him immediately climb back over the wall. Because she's like, hey, I washed your wounds, I put a salve on them, you can't climb over the wall again and tear yourself up. Thinking that because she's the daughter heir, she can just let him walk out the front door and it's no big deal because of her authority, which she thinks is more than it is. And then Galad shows up, and being the rat that he is, though to be fair, at 27 or 28, and understanding the actual rules of the palace, it's more that he's a drag, and I can't blame him for his actions. Knowing how much older he is than his brother and his sister, I don't really think he has any reasonable choice but to go and get the guards. But regardless, Elaine not letting Rant go puts him in danger. And once she realizes that she's put him in danger and she's beginning to worry... You know, Talonvor's going to arrest Rand and bring him to the Queen, and Elaine's like, you have to take all of us to the Queen. And Gowan whispers to Rand, he's like, yeah, he's not going to march in there with all of us under guard. She'll cut his head off. And then the messenger comes to tell Talonvor that what was Elaine's threat is actually the Queen's desire. It is Her Majesty's orders that we all go. She wants to see you guys too. And it takes the winds out of Elaine's sails because she really thought she had the upper hand, and so did Talonvor. And that's kind of a turning point where she realizes, oh, I really fucked up. Elaine often refers to people as her subjects. And because none of us are royalty or landed gentry, because of the time that we live in, that comes across as condescending and it's so possessive that it just has an ick factor. And that is not her intention. For her, she's got that sense of duty. Like, you know, we hear in the story when Almond Bunt is talking to the boys about the royal family, he says that the queen is twice wed. You know, when she's married, she's wed to a man, and then she is also wed to the land. So she has a duty of care to her people. And so for her, her subjects are less, you're subject to me, I own you, you owe me obeisance, so much as that she owes her people everything their lives, their health, their very psychological well-being, all of that is supposed to come before hers. When it comes to her duty, she needs to be first in battle and last in retreat. She needs to be willing to sacrifice. It's one of the reasons why she is so outraged that Elida makes the gardens green when everybody's farms are dying because the spring has not come yet. 
Her duty of care is such that when she thinks of someone as her subject, she is as much subject to them as they are to her. It's about what she owes them. And even if it sounds condescending to us, it's not condescending at all to her. It's like, this is someone I am supposed to care for. This is someone I am responsible for. I have a duty to this person. And she took responsibility for Rand in that moment. He fell off the wall because she spoke to him. She startled him. And so immediately she had an obligation to him. And Elaine takes her obligations seriously. In book four, when Egwene chooses to stand aside, they're all in the Stone of Tear, and she's like, hey, I love him like a brother, you know, if you want to be with him, go for it. Elaine says, this was all supposed to be different, she sighed. I thought I would meet a man, learn to know him over months or years, and slowly I would come to realize I loved him. That is the way I always thought it would be. I hardly know Rand. I've talked with him no more than half a dozen times in the space of a year, but I knew I loved him five minutes after I first set eyes on him. Now that was foolish, only it was true and she did not care if it was foolish. And so, it is foolish and she acknowledges it, and if she were 44 like I am instead of 18 or 17 as she was when Rand fell into her garden, she would know the difference between loving someone and caring about them. My wife and I knew each other, we were co-workers, so we had a friendly work relationship, but what set us on our path toward being together was an emotionally impactful event where her grandmother had died and so our boss had her go sit in an unoccupied room to wait until her ride came. And our boss came to me and was like, hey, Abby's grandmother died. Can you please bring her her coat and her bag and check on her because I've got a meeting to go to. And I was not happy about this because I'm an unintentionally, occasionally insensitive person, partly because I use humor to deal with sadness. And so I was afraid that I would say something insensitive to upset this person that I actually quite liked as a co-worker and liked as a human being. But my boss, who I had been friends with for years before we worked at this place and therefore knew my weaknesses, shamed me into going and doing it. And so I went with this bag in one hand and this coat in the other, quite upset with my boss. But I remembered I was thinking, you know, I really like this person and I don't want to say something to make her upset. What, what should I do? What should I do? You know, when I'm really, really upset, what does my therapist do? And I thought about it and I was like, you know, when I'm most upset, she doesn't say anything. She just kind of sits there and, you know, I've actually spent time thinking I'm paying for this as I'm sobbing in her office and she's just sitting there. But when you look at it, it's kind of like there's something to therapeutic silence and just sitting with someone. And so I went and I sat with my wife and we just kind of had a moment where when she started to talk, we had a conversation where we shared some really personal things and it was very emotionally impactful. And I did not walk away from that thinking that I loved her. I walked away from that knowing that my life had changed and that she mattered to me. And that was different. I'm like, this person matters to me, and I have a duty of care here at this point because something very emotionally impactful happened between us. So I need her to know that I'm here for her if she needs me. I need her to know that if she is stranded in the middle of the night somewhere, she can call me and I will come and get her. I need her to know that because we have at this point shared something in a really sad moment and had an emotional connection, almost like a trauma bond. And what happened between my wife and me was not a trauma bond like the situation that Elaine has with Rand, where she realizes, oh shit, I have put him in so much danger, because they get marched into the throne room, and 
You know, a couple episodes I read out that scene where Elida focuses on Rand like he's some kind of piece of prey or something. And, you know, Elaine isn't exactly afraid of Elida. And I think part of that is just the strength of will of her mother, her sense of invincibility because she's the daughter heir, and Elida's need to tread carefully so as not to piss Morgase off. I think that's the only reason she's not frightened of her. And I think that's one of the reasons that Elida is so resentful. She had to put herself in the advisory capacity to an incredibly strong queen who cannot be bullied and is difficult to manipulate. So while Elaine doesn't like Elida, she doesn't really fear her. At least not until this scene where she realizes that, oh, fuck, this young man is close to being imprisoned and possibly killed. You know, who knows what Elida is going to do here? And if that happens, it's my fault. And the fear she must have felt. Because Rand is looking at Elida. He's looking at the Queen. So you don't get a description, because you're in his head, of Elaine's face. But I imagine her just standing there. I imagine her position of feeling a sense of guilt and fear and responsibility. And just like, what have I done? I fucked up. Oh, Light, I should have let him go back over the wall. And just the sense of recrimination and wondering how can she fix it. So she throws herself on her knees at her mother's mercy and it's just like, I beg you, don't harm him. He wanted to leave. He would have left right away if I hadn't stopped him. I can't believe he's a dark friend. He didn't want to be here. He didn't try to be here. He tried to leave, please. And fortunately, it all came out well in the end, at least as far as she can tell, and so when she walks Rand to the gates afterwards, once the queen releases him, they leave it on kind of a light note. It says, It is the custom, Elaine said, to escort guests as far as the gates, but not to watch them go. It is the pleasure of a guest's company that should be remembered, not the sadness of parting. Thank you, my lady, Rand said. He touched the scarf bandaging his head. For everything. Custom in the two rivers is for a guest to bring a small gift. I'm afraid I have nothing. Although, he added dryly, apparently I did teach you something of the Two Rivers folk. If I had told Mother I think you were handsome, she certainly would have had you locked in a cell. Elaine favored him with a dazzling smile. Fare you well, Randall Thor. Gaping, he watched her go, a younger version of Morgase's beauty and majesty. So she flirts with him a little bit as she leaves, and it's kind of a cute scene. And it's emotionally impactful. I imagine her feeling giddy and relieved as she walks away from there, feeling a sense of duty toward him, and feeling like he matters to her. And, you know, that's real. That is real. And so it makes sense that she thinks about him constantly afterward. It makes sense that she's carrying him around with her. I felt, after I left my wife the day her grandma died, like I was carrying her around inside me everywhere after that. And I didn't realize what it was. It didn't feel romantic. It just felt like a duty of care. But because Elaine's a teenager and thinks this boy is handsome and isn't in the middle of a divorce and isn't dealing with a bunch of baggage and not looking for romance and just not... My wife wasn't my type for a number of different reasons, so I wasn't looking at her that way. But Elaine is looking at Rand that way. Rand is interesting. Rand is an attractive young man, so she looks at him. He dings all kinds of bells for her on a level where she sees him and immediately thinks boyfriend material and just walks away from that, carrying him with her. And he matters. And so she calls that love, even though she acknowledges later that she barely knows him. And so it's more that she wants to love him. 
And there is a danger when relationships are built on emotional trauma that, though they are real, they can be really shallow. There's something between Elaine and Rand, but at this point it lacks depth. She doesn't really know him, but she can't stop thinking about him, and she really wants to know him because she cares about him a lot. And that's relatable. So, once we get into the Shadow Rising, Elaine finally manages to get to be with Rand. And she chooses Rand not because she saw him and had a vision that she would be with him which made her fixate on him, not because she went through a Terangriel and saw her future laid out before her and a vision of, you know, boning down with him in a sex igloo and then was in a constant proximity with him and had to fight all those angry emotions including knowledge of a future that she did not want. She just had a moderately traumatic event go down where she felt a great deal of responsibility and it left her really caring about him and caring about what happens to him. He mattered to her. Even if she did not truly know him enough to love him, she was left in a position where she wanted to know more and wanted to be able to love him because she already had the strength of those emotions there. And that is so real. And so I feel like the genesis of their relationship is much more grounded in reality than the others. And, you know, I did explore in a minisode on my Patreon about how Rand and Min had their feelings develop between each other off screen between book two and book three. And we don't get to see that, but it's there. Min knows that she's going to fall in love with him, and she makes the prophecy happen. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. She has the vision, and then in the four months off-screen between the end of the Great Hunt and the beginning of the Dragon Reborn, she invests the time and the energy into Rand to make it happen. And somewhat similarly, Avienda goes through the Tarangriel and Roydian and sees that she's going to be with him, but then she falls in love with him during the time that they're forced to be constantly interacting with each other, even though she doesn't seem to like him very much. I, I don't know, I find their relationship the least believable, but whatever. But I find far more compelling the fact that Elaine's interest is based upon a realistic event that could conceivably happen, even without a scary magical woman who can see glimpses of the future trying to hold on to Rand so she can keep him in a cell in the hopes of having more foretellings, there's the realistic danger of Morghese just deciding to have him executed or imprison him. Just very everyday type dangers that your mother the queen can inflict on this young man that you didn't let leave when he wanted to leave because he was interesting and you just thought that you had more power to keep harm from happening to him than you actually did. So I really like that about Rand and Elaine. I find their relationship so much more believable than the others because its origin has nothing to do with prophecy. It has nothing to do with a vision seen in a Tarangriel. It has to do with an event, an emotionally traumatic event that caused them to have a sense of connection to each other. And then Elaine was like, I want this to be more. She knew that she wanted it to be more. She wanted it to be love. She called it love already because the feelings were so intense. It was an infatuation. It felt like she was carrying him around with her all the time. And because he mattered to her, she wanted it to be love. And so once she gets the opportunity to actually make a move, even though she's terrified, she does it. And that is a level of agency and initiative that I really appreciate about her. Egwene tells Rand, okay, I'm breaking up with you, bye. And Elaine stays behind and speaks up because she realizes that life is way too short and there's this awkward moment where he's kind of standing there with her before she's like, so, hey, I really like you. We want to make out? And he's got the ruin mattress that he destroyed during their lesson that they had before Egwene breaks up with him. So he grabs all of the feathers and he tells her how he made the Majira flower, which, like I said, I would give anything to see that scene. 
And so he's holding the bundle of feathers and he's like, you know, I'll make you a flower and it's only going to take a trickle of the power, I promise, because he had a giant outburst that led to the mattress being destroyed in the first place and he feels very self-conscious about it and he's not able to touch the source and so he's like, I'll get you something better because honestly this sucks. And she realizes that he couldn't channel and so she picks up all of the feathers and it says... How could he understand that she would keep the feathers because he had wanted them to be a flower? Which is so fucking romantic. You know, that's like deep level feels romantic because, yeah, it's the intent that matters. And that's totally something that I would do. I'm not normally much of a sentimentalist for keepsakes and stuff like that, but I would keep feathers like that just because he had wanted them to be a flower. Because that's just pure rand. That's sweet Rand right there, and one of the few things that he's capable of being soft about is having a handful of people that he can't help but let himself love. It's not even that he's willing anymore to let himself love people after a while, but he just can't stop himself from loving them, and then he punishes himself for it because that's Rand. But RJ basically gives us the whole of Rand and Elaine's time together over the course of what I call the relay race paragraphs where it is semi third person omniscient at the beginning of chapter nine the chapter called decisions my accompanying bonus episode on patreon for episode 29 was about the writing in the series of paragraphs because it starts out with a bit of omniscience talking about the terrans and how they spend the series of three days and then it passes off the point of views with no page breaks and so there's a certain level of omniscience to the flavor of the writing and you get in the series of paragraphs before the camera finally zooms in and focuses on Rand as Suniman and Mylon give him the treaty that's basically like yeah, we're going to trade grain for ships and also put 2,000 Terran soldiers and Torian into Mayen. And Rand throws it back at Mylon and lights it on fire for good measure, which is one of my favorite scenes. So when the baton of point of view gets passed to Elaine, it says, Whenever Rand had a moment to spare, the daughter heir just happened to be close by to talk or simply walk, holding his arm, even if it was only from a meeting with some high lords to a room where others waited or to a lightning inspection of the defender's quarters. She became quite good at finding secluded corners where the two of them could pause alone. Of course, he always had Aegeel trailing after him, but she soon cared as little for what they thought as for what her mother would. She even entered a sort of conspiracy with the Maidens of the Spear. They seemed to know every hidden nook in the stone, and they let her know whenever Rand was alone. They seemed to think the game great sport. The surprise was that he asked her about the governing of nations and listened to what she said. That she wished her mother could see. More than once, Morghese had laughed half despairingly and told her she had to learn to concentrate. Which crafts to protect and how, and which not and why, might be dry decisions, but as important as how to care for the sick. It might be fun to guide a stubborn lord or merchant into doing what he did not want to while thinking it was his own idea. It might be warming to feed the hungry, but if the hungry were to be fed, it was necessary to decide how many clerks and drivers and wagons were needed. Others might arrange it, but then you would never know until it was too late whether they had made a mistake. He listened to her and often took her advice. She thought she could have loved him for those two things alone. And that's brilliant. That's a brilliant bit of writing to let you know that, yeah, they're pausing in corners, they're making out, and they're developing a relationship, and they're talking. But a lot of their talking is actually about the burdens of ruling, and he's getting advice from someone that he trusts. He's not having Moraine nattering in his ear, telling him what he has to do, where he immediately digs in his heels and resists. He's not having Tom slipping him cloak and dagger information, which 
gives him some advice about ruling, but doesn't allow for a lot of immediate feedback. This is much more basic. It's filling in the gaps. He's asking questions about problems where he has genuine gaps in his knowledge, and there's no worry about asking her because she is someone with no agenda but just to help him succeed because she cares about him, and she cares about people, and because she cares about the last battle. And it's an opportunity for her to kind of flex her knowledge because she knows this stuff. I've been learning this stuff my whole life. So yeah, here's what I've learned. Here's what I've learned, and here's what I've learned, you know? So you should do this, and this, and this, and this. And this information is so helpful to him. And that is an intellectual relationship. And it's one that's special. It's cerebral, and it's unique. And just the fact that he would want to spend as much time asking her questions and talking to her about things to do with ruling as he would fooling around, and the fact that Rand listens to her and takes her advice. You know, he has no male pride, no male ego. He sees her as an asset. This is a person who's been trained to rule and understands a lot about running a country because she's been raised so that she can do it someday. A valuable font of information with no ulterior motive except, hey, can we stop and make out a little bit and then you can ask me some more questions about running a country? She's an important resource and he really likes that. And I think the most precious thing to him is that she understands him as the dragon. She can love Rand Althor and the dragon at the same time. She knows being the dragon doesn't make him any less human. You know, he's not a giant entity that's larger than life because she's just a person too who will be a queen someday. She's a daughter rare and will be a queen. And she knows the burden of duty that's involved with that, but it doesn't make her less human. So she doesn't look at him and see the dragon. She's just like, yeah, you're Randall Thor and you're the dragon too. That's your job. That's your duty. But you can be both and it doesn't make you any less of a person. It doesn't make you any less genuine. It doesn't change the fact that you're uncertain. It doesn't change the fact that you can make mistakes. It doesn't keep you from feeling small and scared and self-conscious. Elaine understands the inevitable trauma that's involved with being wedded to lands, being wedded to subjects, or belonging to more than yourself. Because there is inevitable trauma, if you are a good human being, to having to enforce laws, to having to enact them. Like in Lord of Chaos, when Rand ends up having to have Mangan hanged because he breaks the law and kills someone, and Rand has to enforce the laws fairly, because if he favors Aiel, it looks bad with the Kyrian and the Terrans, and so he has to, as much as he likes Mangan, hang him for killing someone. And so because Rand is a good person, that is traumatic. If you are a good person, there is trauma inherent in ruling, because you have to do things that you do not want to do. You have to do things that don't make you feel good. It's inevitable. When it comes to the ruling of a country and the ruling of nations, someone's always going to get hurt. And if you're a good person, you try to rule so that the least harm happens. But it's just inevitable. There's always harm somehow. And that is traumatic if you're a good person. And Elaine understands that. So while what Rand and Elaine have is just this short period of time, and we don't get very much of it, and their thoughts about each other afterward are really immature and really confused. And partly that's because Elaine writes her two letters, which I get because they have this miscommunication. It never occurs to her that he's worried about her safety. So when she tells him that she's leaving, she has to go to Tanchico after the Black Aja because that's her job. As much as she loves being with him, she can't stay with him. That's just her duty and that's how it is. 
and she knows that because she was raised to be a queen. So she goes to tell him and he's relieved because he's like, she'll be safer away from me. And she assumes that he's relieved because he's not that into her. And she's already poured everything into this letter in the hopes that what they have had over those few days meant as much to him as it did to her. And if he sees that she's committed those feelings to paper, he'll feel more invested. And upon misinterpreting his relief at her going, she's like, now I look like a giant asshole. And I get that. It's so teenage, but it's also so relatable to want to try to have that back because you feel so vulnerable and you thought you were wrong about what the other person wanted. And RJ did that so that Rand wouldn't look like a total asshole when he fucks Avienda, because it's sort of like if Elaine had given him the first letter and poured her heart out and not sent the second letter so that he's utterly confused, either he won't fuck Avienda or he'll look like a shithead when he does. And so that confusion and that ambiguity is more or less the purpose of the conflicting letters, but the consequence is Elaine looking silly, and I would hate it, like, intensely, except that it's kind of believable. I can get it. She's young enough to be capable of being that silly in a moment of being deeply hurt. And, you know, you can't take it back. Once you send that text, you can't take it back, even if afterwards you could kick yourself for it. Because you know that she wishes she hadn't sent that second letter. So, Rand and Elaine have mostly dumb and immature thoughts about each other post The Shadow Rising, and you don't see a lot of them together. It's mostly fade to black when Rand comes back and gets her pregnant. But Brandon writes a great scene with them together at the end. And one of the things that I love best is the fact that she is not at all squicked out about the fact that he and Luz Theron are one. Like, Min doesn't want to hear about it. It disturbs her that he hears Luz Theron's voice. And then when he kind of incorporates with Luz Theron, she gets disturbed by that. She does not want to think about it. And Avienda's feelings about it seem mixed. Because she assumes that Rand is going to die, she's not too hung up on it, but she doesn't think it's great. It doesn't make her feel super happy. But Elaine hears that the two of them are one, and she's like, what an advantage. She just immediately sees the tactical advantage of it and thinks it's great. And Rand feels this surge of like, what an amazing woman that she wouldn't think I was awful for this or be squicked out by it, but actually realize what an advantage it was and love me and love me for it. And so I think that their relationship is actually very real, even as juvenile as it often is. And so while RJ does not write relationships particularly well, and does not write this relationship particularly well, you can think about the relationship and imagine what happens, particularly what happens off screen, or what might happen in the inner narrative that he doesn't write and torment us with, and see something that's actually quite genuine. And I appreciate it. But I don't want to talk about it too much in any context but this one, because Elaine is so much more than what she has with Rand. And so I just wanted to do this little mini-sode to talk about it, because I feel like their relationship gets short shrift, and I feel like people dismiss her feelings for Rand, and I feel like people like her relationship of Rand's three women least of all, and I don't think it's fair. So I just wanted to talk about it and get this content out while I'm still finishing up my stuff for the show and my uh, final video for episode 8. Please check out my YouTube channel if you like the show and want to see content about the show. Um, I'll be doing some more stuff for it, like I said, but I am, for now, mostly back to focusing on the books. You can expect a full-length episode next. I'm pretty sure I'm doing one about Matt. Um, that's, that's what I think I'm gonna do next. And you can find me on Twitter at Pod of the Dragon. There's links there 
in the show notes for that and for my YouTube channel, for Patreon. If you could support me on Patreon, that would be wonderful. There is more bonus content there, uh, including a mini-sode about Rand and Min's relationship. Um, And yeah, I am really glad to be making more content about the books again. And Happy New Year, everyone. Take it easy.